It's a privilege to return to the pulpit and to bring God's word to you this morning. Our text comes out of Exodus chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 13. This is a glorious passage, and uh, we'll only scratch the surface this morning, but I'd encourage you this week, spend some time in this passage, and uh, hopefully the outline will give you a way of thinking about the passage, maybe that you haven't thought about before, or if you already have, that it'll help to deepen your study of these, of these verses. So let's read together. Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 through six thirteen. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went, and they said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle." Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And then the foremen of the people of Israel came and they cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle, and that is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks." Then the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
And then Moses turned to the Lord and he said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses, and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And so the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and he gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Thus far, the reading and hearing of God's word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> o most holy and faithful God, you have revealed yourself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to Pharaoh, and you reveal yourself this morning to us in your word. Make yourself known in particular by your spirit in our hearts. Work mightily in our midst that you might open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears, that you might make mouths speak that were once mute, that we might move and act in a way that not only obeys your word, but that enjoys and embraces and glories in the covenant promises that you've given to us. Father, may these promises be true for our lives, that you would be our God, that we would be your people, and that you would dwell in our midst. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> There's a, 18, a 19th century poem entitled Ozymandias. Uh, it's a poem written by Percy Shelley, and many of you may have heard of it or read it in school. And in this poem, we see a telling reminder that the authority of all earthly kings pales in comparison to the eternal king that the rule of all earthly kings is temporal and temporary. Now, as a traveler comes in this poem, he goes to Egypt, 
and he stands there on the sands of Egypt looking out over the uh, looking out over the Valley of the Kings and over the pyramids, and he spies this plaque in the sand, and he goes over to the plaque and reads these words. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. And yet as he looks about him, as he looks even at the great pyramids themselves, what is left of the works of this mighty king but tombs and sand? In the poem, we read this. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Here we see this statue built to Ozymandias, or as many of us know him, Ramses II, Pharaoh of Egypt. And nothing remains of all of his works but a dead body and tombs. Earthly kings think that their might will last forever, but their temporary might only leads to death. It does not lead to eternal life. And dear brothers and sisters, our eternal home, our eternal rest, and even for you this morning, if you do not claim the name of Christ, your eternal hope is only found in the King of Kings, the true King of Kings, that is Christ the Lord. And so our greatest need is to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to be his people, that he would be our God. And even as we look at the text, we need to remind ourselves that even as Christians, it is easy for us to forget our God, to forget that we are his, the sheep of his pasture, to forget his authority in our lives, that he calls us to a high and a holy calling. And so the text before us, I want it's, it's a long text, like I've said, there's a lot that's here, but I want us to pull out two major points, namely Pharaoh's defiant question and God's authoritative answer to see that you are called to know the God of Scripture and to submit to his divine authority. You are called to know the God of Scripture and to submit to his divine authority. So let's look there at in the beginning of chapter 5, we read here of the first time Moses and Aaron finally go into the presence of Pharaoh, and what do they say? Thus says Yahweh. Thus says the Lord. The God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. It's interesting, as far as I can tell, this is the first time in Scripture that these words appear from a person, in particular a prophet, speaking the words of God. Thus says the Lord. This is a pattern that will appear throughout the prophets, a pattern that will appear even up to John the Baptist and even Jesus himself. Thus I say, as as the authoritative son of God, this is the word of the Lord. Listen and tremble. Let my people go. Those are his words delivered by his servant And therefore, the command comes with authority. It comes as a self-attesting word. It proves itself to be the very words of God by its power, by its authority, and by by its comprehensive nature that it says, I am the words of God. Moses comes, we read in the book of Hebrews 11, in that hall of faith, person after person after person, we read that Moses was a man of faith. We read in verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses came by faith 
not being afraid of the anger of the king. Moses comes here with his brother Aaron, and even in the midst of all that we've seen in chapter 4, where he says, I don't know how to speak, I need someone to, I need someone to help me. God sends Aaron out of his graciousness, but Moses comes nonetheless. And you'll notice how, he identify, how God identifies his people even here. Let my people go. We already see glimpses of that remembering of his covenants, of his covenant that God spoke to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that he will be God to his people. He remembers, he hears, and he knows. But Pharaoh responds in defiance. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? I'm Pharaoh. I'm the high priest of all the land of Egypt. I'm the one with authority. And the peoples come to worship me. They come to bow before me. Who is this other competing God that I should listen, that I should obey, that I should let his people, and you can hear in Pharaoh's mind, that I should let my people, Pharaoh's people, go. But even more, we look at, and we'll see this interaction throughout chapter 5. We see the purpose of the command. And again, think of Pharaoh as high priest of Egypt. Let my people go that they may hold a feast in the wilderness. Verse 3, and then he said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go three days journey into the wilderness. For what purpose? That we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall on us with pestilence and with the sword. The purpose of the command is not only to show authority, not only to show that God is Yahweh, that he remembers his covenant, but that his people are to worship. That his people in the midst of slavery and in the midst of severe, severe trial and persecution are to worship. And yet Pharaoh stands in defiance of this true God and of his true worship. The knowledge of Jehovah, the knowledge of God is a theme throughout the book of Exodus. In fact, it's one of the major themes that you can see as we progress even from Genesis to this point. We've seen that the knowledge of God after the fall has severely declined among not only God's people, but the people's of the earth. We see it in Cain. We see it in the flood. We see it at the Tower of Babel. We see it as Abraham is called out of Ur and his father is, we read in Hebrews, he's an idolater. And yet God calls him out. So the knowledge of God is waning. It's decreasing. But then we see in Exodus that the knowledge of God is being revealed again and again through covenant Not only as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are coming to a land of promise, living as sojourners, but think about the purpose of the burning bush. What does he say? This is my name forever, and thus I am to be known. Thus I am to be remembered. It's the purpose of the plagues. He says in chapter 7, God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. It's the purpose of the victory at the Red Sea. What does he say again? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. It's the purpose of the Sinai Covenant. 
I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, that you would know my law, that you would obey my commands, and that we would dwell together. But Pharaoh does not know the Lord. Who is he that I should obey him? And the question, I think, comes down to this for us. As we look at Pharaoh's response, does the revelation of God, does his word, does his creation, the revelation of himself in the world around you, as you look at sunsets and you look at the beauty and the order and the, and the intricacies of creation and biology, does that soften you or does it harden you? Because Pharaoh had all of it. He had the knowledge of God in creation. Yes, he did not have saving knowledge. We see that. But Pharaoh had the revelation of God in the creation of the world. And yet, what did it do? It hardened his heart as he hardens his heart, as God hardens his heart to bring about his holy purposes. But what does it do to Moses? It softens God uses Moses to bring his people out of Egypt. He uses a man who didn't think he was worthy to call a people out of Egypt to himself. You know, kids, you might think about this time of year, it's the fall, right? And think, when you think about the responses of Pharaoh and Moses, imagine your parents ask you to rake the leaves, right? And you might have two Two responses, there could be variations on this theme, but two basic responses. The one, nope, I don't want to. I'm not going to rake the leaves. I don't even know where the rake is. You didn't tell me how to rake. You didn't tell me where to rake. I don't really want to anyway. I'm reading a book. Not going to. There's the defiant answer. Or you have the obedient answer. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Could I finish this page first? What does your parent say? Nope, you need to go rake the leaves. Okay, uh, where's the rake? <laughs> you notice the, the second answer doesn't just say yes sir or yes ma'am, but it asks for more information. It genuinely seeks the, the person who, ask, who gives the command and seeks relationship with them and doesn't just give up when you don't know the answers to the questions, but how quickly can all of us, children and adult alike, When we don't know the answer to the questions, we give up. When we don't know how to do something, we simply say, well, God has not given me the tools I need, rather than going to him, as Moses does later, and asking, how am I going to accomplish this? I don't know. And so we have that defiant response and the obedient response in contrast with Moses and Pharaoh. And you'll notice that Pharaoh's authority then is asserted, and the rest of really chapter 5 I want to look at it as a, an ensuing, a re, the results of that question, of that defiance on Pharaoh's part. Who is the Lord? Because he, in, in verse 7, we read that that same day he asserts this authority that he thinks is true authority. He says, you claim God of the Hebrews to be the true authoritative king of kings and lord of lords, but I say, Pharaoh, I'm going to assert authority today. I'm going to prove the same day that I can be the king of kings, that I can be the one in authority. But he also inflicts not only immediate, but harsh authority. 
No straw is given. They have to go and gather the straw for themselves. The Israelites are scattered. And you think about what this would do to the Israelites. Not only would it scatter them throughout the land, making it, some, some, uh, some commentators think that it's, they can't now have conversations to conspire against Pharaoh. Maybe that was some idea. But I think more than anything, it's going to certainly demoralize them. They're not going to be able to get back to get the work done as quickly. It's obviously just more difficult labor. That is what we see in the text. But it's also going to require more laborers. It's going to require more Israelites to come, not just the men necessarily, but maybe even the women and the children. And they're going to have to enlist more people in the work of the Egyptians. The number of bricks we read, we read in chapter 8 is not reduced And the Israelites, we read later on in verse 14 and 16, the Israelites themselves, including the foreman, are beaten severely. But if we back up even to verse 9, I think we see some key here in Pharaoh's words. What does he say? Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Not only do we have immediate authority, harsh authority and this dispersing the people of God, but we also have Pharaoh setting himself up as the truth. Pharaoh is saying, pay no heed to those lying words. Your God, your messenger, the one who's supposedly going to bring you out of my captivity, he's lying to you. And I'm telling you the truth. Here's the reality, Israelites. You're stuck here with me forever. You know, imagine that you have a puzzle and the pieces are scattered all over the yard. <laughs> and this is a 5,000-piece puzzle. It's a big puzzle. And you're told you've got to do this puzzle in 30 minutes or less so you're not going to have any dinner that night. And while you're gathering the pieces, you're going to be heckled. You know what heckling is? Right? You're gonna, someone's going to start yelling at you. You can't do it. You're not good enough. You can't get all the pieces. It's too much. It's too big. That's some sense of what the Egyptians are doing to the Israelites. That they're not only making it hard for the Israelites, but they're also making it demoralizing, insulting. All that Pharaoh knows, all that the Egyptians know in this situation to make the Israelites to submit are these three things. One, might makes right. Number two, all rest is laziness. Number three, worship is a waste of time. And you see those things trickle down to the people of Israel. We read that the taskmasters there are even going to Moses. Verse 20, the taskmasters come out from meeting with Pharaoh. They meet with Moses and Aaron who are waiting for them as they come out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. And I think on the one hand, we need to recognize what's going on here. I mean, these, these people are under this severe torment. And this torment is ripping the people of Israel apart. God will say later, you are my people. I am the unifying feature, the factor that brings you all together. But what are they doing? They're going not to God, but to Moses. And they're saying, you are the problem, Moses. 
how easy is it for us to do the same? That rather than to go to God, we go to others to say, no, you're the problem. Rather than to go to God and say, God, here is the problem. How do I solve it? What is the solution? I know that you're at work. I don't see how. And so what does Moses do? He does just that. He goes to the Lord. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Verse 22. Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you've not delivered your people at all. There's a lot here. We could frankly preach a whole sermon on these two verses. (laughs) On the nature of evil and how God is not the author of it. Suffice it to say, Moses comes to God. Moses brings his questions to God. And he does so, I believe, in faith, Hebrews 11. There is, there's a debate in the commentaries as to whether this is a defiant question. I don't think so. And I think we have to frame it in the context of chapter 5 and chapter 4. That Moses is struggling. Moses is a man who is being taught by God and brought along by God and reminded that I am with you, Moses. And so, yes, he's going to struggle. No, he's not going to be perfect. But in the midst of his doubts, there is sustained faith. That we can believe in God, but yet have doubts in how he's going to accomplish that plan. Doubts in the realities of what's around us. But the faith remains. I'm not doubting you, Lord. I'm doubting how you're going to accomplish these things. I don't understand. I don't know. I don't know. And so I think we need to be mindful of that, that Moses is not accusing, but rather he's coming to the God who commissioned him. And so as we look at chapter 5, consider the fact that sin leads to more sin. Defiance of Pharaoh leads to the accusations of the taskmasters, leads to the doubt in Moses' own heart. That bitterness, that anger, that when we as parents come to our children and we are upset in our own hearts, that the trickle-down effect works its way all the way to the bottom. Or siblings, when you're dealing with bitterness or anger and you come to each other and you're not preparing your heart first and you're not thinking about how are the words I'm going to say, how are they going to impact my brother or my sister? How is this going to impact my dad or my mom when I come to them and I'm accusing or I'm trying to make it look like they're the one that's the problem? This is true for us as adults with our own parents. Are we gracious in honoring our fathers and our mothers in living with our children in an understanding way and not exasperating them, in not giving them bricks without straw? Are we living as families in a way that is faithful to the commands of God and to his graciousness even as we are faithful to discipline and to instruct and to help and to come alongside of our own children and alongside of one another, reminding and encouraging and helping. How do you answer that question, who is the Lord? If you sit here today and you're not a believer, and you don't believe that Christ is your Savior, Well, you don't believe, like Pharaoh, you don't believe that God is the God in the heavens. Maybe you don't believe he's there at all and that you are the master of your own destiny, that you determine the future, that you're the one that your heart determines the end from the beginning. 
Or maybe God is a nuisance. Maybe he's a tyrant. Maybe he's permissive. Maybe he's a terror. No, the God of Scripture it reveals himself to us as the God who works through covenants. The God who works through people. The God who reveals himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The God who reveals himself through his creation. And he is gracious. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. He is not like Pharaoh. Is the Lord your Savior? Pharaoh didn't see himself in any means as the Savior of his people, even the people of Egypt. But they had to worship. They had to honor. They had to work for his glory. Does Christ, does his glory, does that does that joy of looking at the cross and seeing God become flesh, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, of a slave, and bringing his people to himself, drawing them with the bonds of love and saying, this is the way I demonstrate authority. This is the way I demonstrate love is through making myself nothing. Pharaoh knew nothing of that. He knew nothing of that kind of gracious condescension. He knew nothing of God's love. And we must be mindful of that in ourselves, that we express that, encourage that, uh, preach that, that we are on mission to do those things to show the world what God is truly like. And so Moses' faith then is shored up by God's answer and I've already hinted at this in chapter 6, that when God comes, he does so, answering this question three times, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God besides me. All the gods of the heathens are deaf, dumb, and blind. They cannot hear, speak, or know. God, we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For what? With a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. You'll notice there's no contradiction. Again, you could preach a whole sermon on the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility just in verse 1. I will do to Pharaoh. He will send them out. There's no contradiction in Scripture between those. And no, the writer, had, he knew exactly what he wrote. Moses knew what he wrote five words prior. He's aware. And God is aware of what he is doing through Pharaoh, in Pharaoh, and with Pharaoh. And God is using him for his holy ends. God is first El Shaddai. That word mighty, strong, is that word Shaddai. I am God Almighty. And I will do my works in the world. But God is also the Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant making, the covenant keeping, the promise keeping God. This is the ground of the covenant. The ground of your hope, dear Christian, is that God is Yahweh. That he is who he is. And therefore, you are who you are. And it's not the other way around. It's not, I think, therefore I am, is God thought, therefore I am. He is the ground for my existence. He created and I came to be. He thought and I was. He spoke and the world 
came into existence. He brings you, he, he, is, he is the one who shows you what he desires you to be. You'll notice in verse 2, I am the Lord, what does he do? I appear to Abraham, I appear to Isaac, to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. I have heard the groaning of my people. The Egyptians held them as slaves, and I've remembered the covenant. I am the Lord. And what is he going to do? Not only am I these things, not only is this who I am in my character, that's the foundation of our confidence, the foundation of our hope, verses 1 through 5. But then in verses 6, through, uh, through 8, we see the action of God, the work of God in his world, in creation, among his people, for his glory. What does he say? I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How? Because I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence is in the one who made us. You might imagine uh, you know, a child is sick at night. We had this experience with Peter the other night. Uh, he woke up and he was feverish. And I walk in the room and he kind of you know, wakes up halfway and he says, who is it? And I said, it's daddy. And I walk over to his bed and he's fighting me, <laughs> delirious and half awake. And I said, Peter, it's, it's daddy. And I grab him and I hold him and he's fighting. But he calms down after I hold him and talk to him and caress him and remind him that this is who I am. I'm his father. And that's what God does for us. He holds us. He reminds us. He works patiently with us even as we are kicking and screaming and saying, no, 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 you, you don't know. You don't understand. God comforts us with those words, I am Yahweh and there is no other. But you look at the reality of what happens and you might say, well, they don't seem comforted. <laughs> Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. I want to consider this morning that the people of Israel, A, consider this, the nature of their slavery, and B, the nature of their own hearts. That they have harsh, they're enduring harsh slavery, and they have broken spirits. Do you know what that's like? I, I certainly do. That our spirits can be broken. We can be downcast. And we can be enduring severe hardship where we don't want to listen. And we don't want to understand or to consider the realities of what even the good news that we're hearing. That, that God is redeeming us. That he is working through and in us. That his spirit is, is, is in our hearts. That he is Emmanuel. God with us. God most often works through trials rather than around them. 
God most often works through your trials rather than around them. He can remove your trials from you, yes. God is able to do those things. But we read in Scripture again and again and again that God works through trials. The people of Israel are one picture of that, and we are one picture of that. And so Moses, in verse 12, after God tells him, he reminds him, go in again, tell Pharaoh, let the people go. What does Moses do? He goes to God and he talks to God and he says, behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? Because I am of uncircumcised lips. I grew up an Egyptian. I I didn't grow up with these people. I was a baby when my mom put me on the river. And I grew up in the household of Pharaoh. They they know that I'm different. How are they going to listen? How is Pharaoh going to listen? I left his house and I went to Midian. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not an Egyptian. I've left everything. Where is Moses' identity? Where is your identity? It is in the God who made you. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and he gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people out of Israel and out of Egypt. What does God do? He reaffirms his promise. He reaffirms his covenant. He reaffirms his commandments. And he says, this is how you're to live. You know it. Now live it. There's nothing new in the Bible. For those of us who've been Christians many, many years, we look at the Bible and we say, I've read this 20, 25, 30, 40 times. I know the words. I come to church every Lord's Day. I'm faithful. You know the tune. You know the lyrics backwards and forwards. But does the song make your, make your heart sing? Does it give you confidence that the king that you come to worship this morning is in fact your God? That the one who made you also redeemed you. He bought you. He died for you. That the one who created you sustains you through trials and through the realities of even death itself. That he brings you over the river Jordan and he says, your home is not here. You are a passing through to a land of glory where you will see as you are seen. Do you have areas in your life where you do not trust God's authority, where you want to be in control? Maybe you don't pray about those areas. Maybe you don't seek him in prayer. But what are we to do? We're to come to him. We're to read that old, old story and be reminded that in the words of of Scripture, there is life, that it is living and active, that God speaks through his word. It's not a dead book but that God, by His Spirit, accompanies even the preaching of His Word and He makes His Word alive to you so that you might be restored, so that you might be set by streams of living water and not dank or or water that smells till till it goes sour. No, God's Word and His promises are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Why do we trust in His promises? Because he is Yahweh. His character is unchanging. And he demonstrates his love in the person and the work of Christ whose kingdom is the only one 
unlike Ozymandias, his kingdom is the only one who lasts forever. And the monuments to Christ are his people. The monuments to God's work are those that he says, well done, good and faithful servants. These are eternal monuments of God's authority. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Father, what a, what a telling reminder it is to us this morning. What a, <laughs> what a compelling message that you are in authority, that you love, that you, that you work through your word and in believers to bring about the salvation and the sanctification and the glorification of your people, that you are with us from beginning to end. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here who may not believe in Christ, that they would love and see your glory as their greatest end, as their highest good. For those of us that are believers, that you would shore up our faltering uh, doubts that you would remind us that we are to run to the rock who is higher than us, lift our eyes to Jerusalem, to worship, to serve, and glory in the one who has made us and redeemed us. Help us to do these things for the sake of your Son, by the work of your Spirit, and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.